Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world That we may dream as one With every voice, with every song We will move this world along If you're a regular Spirit in Action listener, you've probably already fallen in love with Peterson Toscano, who sits in as host of Spirit in Action every three months with an update from Citizens Climate Radio. Peterson is, in addition to his role with Citizens Climate Radio and, as his website proclaims, a quirky queer Quaker performance artist and scholar. Not words that you've normally associated in the same sentence. That's the way Peterson is, a one-of-a-kind treasure. Whenever you hear him, you'll go away richer in knowledge, in insight, and in joy. Did I mention that Peterson has an incredible sense of humor to accompany his profoundly serious side? I'll be back next week as your host of Spirit in Action. In the meantime, get ready for Citizens Climate Radio and Peterson Toscano. Over to you, Peterson. Hey, thank you, Mark, for letting me host Spirit in Action again. And thank you for listening. In today's episode, we're going to talk about pets and climate change. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about pet care and how our changing planet affects these creatures under our care. I will chat with veterinarian Steva Stoll Hardcastle. In the second half of the show, she will share very specific, helpful tips to keep your pet safe and healthy. But first, I explore a topic that has stirred up a lot of debate among climate communication experts. We want our words to move people to action. Today, we talk about the end of the world, or maybe we shouldn't. Today, we talk about fear and the role it can, should, or should never play when talking about climate change. Doomsday. On July 9th, 2017, at 9 p.m., the story dropped. David Wallace Wells, writing for New York Magazine, delivered a blow to New York City and beyond. He published an article entitled The Uninhabitable World. In it, he asks, When will climate change make the Earth too hot for humans? Wallace Wells outlined what might happen if we do nothing about climate change. He paints a grim picture. Here are some of the section titles in Wallace Wells' article. They sound a lot like the teasers you hear when they're trying to get people to tune into the evening news. Heat death, the Bahraining of New York. Climate plagues, what happens when bubonic ice melts? Unbreathable air, a ruling death smog that suffocates millions. And perpetual war, the violence baked into the heat, 
This and more tonight on News Warnings. That plus who warns of economic collapse and poisoned oceans. Dire stuff. Of course, this is not the first time New York City faced a major threat. This city is headed for a disaster of biblical proportion. What do you mean, biblical? What he means is Old Testament, Mr. Mayor. Real wrath of God type stuff. Fire and brimstone coming down from the skies. Rivers and seas boiling. Forty years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes. The dead rising from the grave. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Wallace Wells never claims that all these things will come to pass exactly how he describes them. At the beginning of his article, he writes, quote, What follows is not a series of predictions of what will happen. That will be determined in large part by the much less certain science of human response. Instead, it is a portrait of our best understanding of where the planet is heading absent aggressive action. It is unlikely that all of these warning scenarios will be fully realized, largely because the devastation along the way will shake our complacency. End quote. As soon as his piece appeared, the climate communication world reacted strongly. Some say Wallace Wells went too far. Others, that he didn't go far enough. Two camps quickly formed. Those who defended the piece and others who denounced it. While some detractors debated the science, the biggest problem they had were the methods used in it. This article stirred up fear. An alternate title for the piece could easily be Climate Change. Be afraid. Be very afraid. For the past five years or more, climate communication experts stressed Fear should not be used when talking to the public about climate change. It can have a negative effect. In her reaction to the scary article, Rachel Becker reviews some of the social science on scare tactics. Becker explains, quote, The balance between sharing alarming information and being alarmist is tricky, end quote. While admitting communication researchers have mixed views about fear and messaging, Becker concludes we should avoid fear. Quote, Scare tactics can backfire when people put up their psychological defenses against the threatening information rather than defending against the threat itself. These can include paying less attention to a frightening message or straight-up denial about the extent of the danger. End quote. The thinking goes that when people face an immediate threat, fire in a movie theater or, say, a tornado warning, fear provokes the fight-or-flight instinct, an immediate strong reaction. But with a big threat that unfolds over time with no immediate felt danger, it is harder for humans to process. Our imaginations are not big enough to take it all in. For some further insight, I turn to the Icelandic scientist Haldor Björnsson. He is the head of the Atmospheric Research Group at Vedrstofreislins, also known as the Icelandic Met Office. He lives and works in Reykjavik. I first interviewed him two years ago. 
At that time, I found him surprisingly optimistic about humans' ability to respond to climate change. Most climate scientists I know are not pessimists, and none of them are defeaters. Climate change is probably fighting it and winning it. It's probably an effort on the magnitude of fighting a major war, but it's, you know, it doesn't have to kill anyone, which is a good thing, and, and, and it probably wouldn't be as intense at any one moment. It would just take a longer time. This is a war we can win. You know, when, when you talk about transforming the energy system, you have so many people saying, well, you know, it's not economical, it's, it's not going to work, blah, blah, blah. And, and then you actually go, okay, well, this is going to raise the price of electricity by 10% or something. And you go, yeah, well, that's probably not a huge cost given, you know, what's going to happen if you don't do this. You know, I, I will bet you that if once you've done the transition, this, the same people would look back and say, well, there was no other way of doing it like we did, you know. Right in the middle of the New York Magazine article debate, I followed up with Haldor Bjornsson on Facebook. I asked him about fear and climate communication. He wrote back, quote, Fear is a good motivator when there is an immediate danger. But for long-term risk, such as the risk of future forest fire engulfing your home, or an avalanche hitting your house, or sea level rise due to climate change filling up your basement, where fight or flight response is of little use, then fear is not a good motivator. End quote. Still, lots of people are defending the New York Magazine article and its use of fear. David Roberts wrote a piece for Vox entitled, Did that New York Climate Magazine freak you out? Good. Roberts raises questions about the commonly held belief that the climate communicator should not use fear tactics. He writes, quote, First, social scientists are forever testing how individuals respond to various messages in lab conditions, in the short term. But the dynamics that matter most on climate are social and long term. It may be that there are social dynamics that require some fear and paralysis before a collective breakthrough. At the very least, it seems excessive to draw a pat fear never works conclusion from these sorts of data. End quote. Last month, I attended a climate communication talk at the Nonfiction Now conference in Iceland. A panel of scholars came together to talk about apocalypse. They considered hope, hype, and apocalyptic anxiety. How can we mobilize nonfiction for climate change? The panel was facilitated by Christian Birktal, who has a PhD in rhetoric. He continues his studies at the Center for Development and the Environment at the University of Oslo. In his introduction, Dr. Birktal gets right to the heart of our discussion about fear and climate change. Our concern in this session will be how we are, how we can, and how we should mobilize nonfiction writing for climate change. And our starting point, as our title reveals, is that a great deal of current climate change discourse is apocalyptic in nature. And I think we can reveal as much. There is this sense uh, among the panelists that something is a bit wrong with that mode. Now, this motive of apocalypse is, uh, as we know, at least as old as the Bible. Well, it's older than the Bible, but many of us know it from there. 
and you find this everywhere, but one of the most memorable instances of uh, this kind of apocalyptic climate, uh, climate rhetoric that I ever came across was at a climate conference co-organized by the Church of Norway, where one of our bishops got on the stage and said that, well, climate change is, as they say, one of the greatest threats we face today. But all our talk about it isn't having the desired effect. It isn't having any effect at all. Obviously, the bishop's proposal was that we go to the Bible to see what resources are there with which to build a contemporary uh, narrative about climate change, basically about ourselves at this point in time. More concretely, he said, we should go to the book of Revelation, so to the Apocalypse of John, as it's also called, which, as some might remember, is one hellish story, if you could use a word like that, where a whole catalog of devil devil descends on humanity. There's earthquakes, uh, mountains and continents that move out of place, stars that fall to the ground, seven-headed dragons that uh, come on the scene to eat children, uh, bottomless pits that open up, and so on. Sounds familiar, but does it work? And if so, when is it most effective to insert fear into our conversations about climate? Dr. Bjerkdal travels back in time to consult a master of rhetoric. And if we go to Aristotle, who is the father of rhetoric as a systematic form of study, he had, uh, in fact, quite a lot to say, not, not so much about apocalypse, but about fear as a rhetorical device. And he said, fear can be perfectly uh, legitimate and also sensible rhetorical device given uh, that certain requirements are fulfilled. So only under certain conditions uh, ought you use fear. And those requirements were, for fear to be appropriate, uh, the threat would have to be real, so not virtual or imagined. The threat would have to be severe, so not negligible, and, and it would have to involve a loss of some kind, a great loss, he says. It would have to be imminent, so near to us in time and place. And it would also have to affect us and not just some set of others. Okay, it is only the very beginning of this panel and I am already on the edge of my seat. But it's so weird hearing all of this. There I was in Northern Europe with virtually 24 hours of gorgeous sunlight It is beautiful outside, sunny with crisp, fresh air and spring flowers exploding all over the place. It was nearly impossible to imagine the dire risks of climate change. So maybe a little fear is necessary to stir up the conversation? Does Aristotle's criteria for talking about fear apply? One might think that climate change does uh, fulfill all these requirements, but I think upon closer scrutiny, I think we can see that it actually does not. Climate change, I think most can agree, uh, is real, but is the threat that climate change represents uh, that real? I'm not so sure. So uh, climate scientists, for instance, are quite, they have grown quite confident when it comes to diagnosing the situation. So they're very certain that climate change is real, but they're not as uh, successful or not even as confident when it comes to describing the consequences. They try to do that, but they're quite honest about uh, saying that we we don't actually know precisely what will happen because this is too complex to to prophecy. And if it isn't, the threat isn't real in that way, how severe is it really? Probably is very severe, but is is it experienced as severe in our everyday lives? Again, I doubt that. At least in our part of the world, very few actually live the consequences of climate change. And if they do, they're not necessarily aware of that fact. 
the threat also does not seem very imminent. There is talk now about tipping points that we're kind of closing in on the tipping point, but again, nobody really experiences that tipping point, at least not yet. And we don't really see the contours of it because we don't know what, what will tip and how. You know? And the threat also appears to be more severe for others than for us. The threat appears far worse for the global south than the north. The poor seem, again, to be far worse off than the rich. So Aristotle, I think, would say that uh, given these conditions, apocalypse or fear should just be dropped. Find another way of, of conveying this message. Apocalypse. Such a strong word. When I hear it, it hits my ears in a funny way. In addition to my work as a climate advocate, I am also a Bible scholar. The word apocalypse comes from a Koine Greek word, apokalupsis. In its original form, it means a revealing or an unveiling. It is a revelation, as if a curtain is suddenly pulled back. One sees what has been hidden from sight. That unveiling jars us awake. In fact, this describes very well what many climate advocates have experienced. They heard a talk, saw a movie, read a book, and suddenly grasped how severe the problem of climate change is. It jolted them into action. And for many of us, fear was part of that revelation. The fear of what could happen if we do nothing. So we must do something. Back to Haldor Björnsson. On our Facebook thread, I asked him about another strong emotion. Anger. Does it help to stir up anger for our audience? What if we were to twin outrage with fear? He wrote, quote, I think anger is important, but also sheer determination. End quote. He then goes on to explain something that puzzled me on my recent trip to Iceland. After the conference in Reykjavik, my husband Glenn and I traveled to the West Fjords to stay in the little fishing village of Flatri. Their stunning fjords tower over the sea inlet. And on a tiny peninsula is this town with less than 200 inhabitants. Driving into Flatri, I marveled at the mountains and the sea. And then I noticed something man-made. At the base of the mountain, directly overshadowing the village, are earthenworks. They constructed a giant triangle-shaped wall as big as a football stadium. The base of the triangle hovers over the entire village. The other two sides extend beyond the village by hundreds of meters. It looks like a massive arrowhead pointing up from the village at the mountain. This is an anti-avalanche barrier. Haldor explained, quote, In 1995, 30 people died in two avalanches in northwest Iceland. Two small towns were decimated. The people there had known about the risk for a long time, but ignored it. Official response was never sufficient to tackle it. However, once this had happened and the initial trauma had subsided, it came down to this never-again mindset. End quote. On October 26, 1995, at 4.06 a.m., the avalanche crashed into the little town of Flatteri. It destroyed 29 homes. 20 people died. Today, when you visit this 
beautiful fishing village, you will see reminders of the tragedy, the graves, the historical marker, and the stories residents share. But the biggest memorial is the massive anti-avalanche barrier. But not only do they build this one barrier and develop plans to protect this village, they organized a nationwide effort to keep a tragedy like this from ever happening again. This effort includes regular monitoring, a sophisticated evacuation plan, and state-of-the-art hazard mapping that is constantly updated. Haldor explains, quote, After that, I'm not sure anger or fear are the right descriptors of the mood that subsequently took hold. Rather, it was sheer determination that appropriate measures would be taken, villages moved, deflectors built, etc. It was this, we can fix this and we will attitude. It is of course sad that people had to die before this happened. I'm always waiting for the great American ethos of this is wrong, let's fix it, to take over the debate in the US." End quote. The United States can be slow to act. Witness World War II. Most historians mark the beginning of the war with the Nazi invasion of Poland in September 1939. While the US Congress allowed the sale of arms to France and Britain, the U.S. stayed out of the fight. The Canadians, Australians, and others sent troops as debate raged among American politicians and the public. Some even outright denied the atrocities the Jews and other marginalized groups suffered by the Nazis in Germany and occupied countries. Then, on December 7, 1941, more than two years after the start of the war, the Japanese government attacked Hawaii at Pearl Harbor. Immediately, there was political will to join the war effort. With breathtaking speed, the U.S. government and public galvanized resources and mobilized a robust response. So when it comes to climate change, do Americans need a Pearl Harbor moment to get fully engaged? Some point to Hurricane Katrina, Superstorm Sandy, the drought in California, or the almost constant wildfires in the West and Northwest. If the climate were a foreign power or a terror organization, it has already attacked the USA multiple times in multiple places. Individuals and regions have responded to these events. Communities have experienced apocalypse, that revelation that we are in grave danger and we must act. And they are acting. But nationally, many people living in the USA still hear dismissive talk saw a retreat from climate action, and live in a suspended state of inaction. What will it take? Perhaps a series of extreme heat events so severe they sear into people's minds the severity of the times we face. Hopefully not. Climate communications expert Edward Maybach tells us, quote, the biggest problem is the climate silence in America, end quote. If Maybach and other communicators are right about this, one of the most important roles we have to play is to break that silence. Some might say by any means necessary. That is the vital work you do every time you open your mouth about climate change. 
That's what you do when you engage with your friends through social media or reach out to public officials. We may disagree about tactics. We need to listen to each other and definitely to the communication experts. But this is uncharted territory in lots of ways. With a problem this big, one size does not fit all. Your creativity and ability to build relationships are vital. And sometimes, maybe, you just have to scare the snot out of people. Maybe, and maybe not. I know that for me as a climate advocate, I do need to be frightened every now and then. We live in a world where it seems few people talk seriously about climate change. The severity of the issue can get dulled over time. Reading about the threats, getting shaken anew, this helps keep me focused. But as a communicator, I understand that frightening people often doesn't work. What does, though, is letting them see my heart, my concern, my fears. So my goal is to reveal how climate change has moved me to action. I don't stir up fear in their hearts. Rather, I let them see mine, along with the determination and the hopes that I have. I'd love to hear your thoughts about this topic. Feel free to email me, radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. At Citizens Climate Lobby, we have a lot of hope because we have an action plan. And if you want to learn more about that, visit citizensclimate.org to get more information. Now, there's still a lot more to come up in this episode of Spirit in Action. Up next, I sit down with Dr. Steva Stoll Hardcastle, a veterinarian who shares with us how we can keep our pets safe in a time of climate change. Oh, and we will also hear a message from the year 2167 and learn about the pets of the future. As Peterson Toscano said, this is Spirit in Action of Northern Spirit Radio. Webly, that means you'll find us at northernspiritradio.org. Twelve years of our programs, links to guests, further info, stations that broadcast our shows, and comments. Add your comment at northernspiritradio.org and make our communications two-way, the best way. And click donate when you visit and keep this work alive. Full-time work supported only by your donations, not money from corporations or government. But before that, make sure you keep your local community radio station thriving by donating of your hands and wallet. Local, people-powered voices are crucial, and community radio is your best bet, so support them. Now, back to the second half of today's Spirit in Action program with guest host Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio.
Lately, I have been having lots of conversations about pet care. While there is a spiral of silence concerning climate change, most people I meet are very happy to talk about their pets. Being forever curious about climate change, I wondered, how are pets affected by global warming? How is pet care a climate issue? In the second half of our Spirit in Action, we explore the many ways pets and climate rub up against each other. You will learn how to protect your pet in a time of climate change. For climate communicators, you will also discover how to talk to pet owners about our changing climate. To help with our conversation today, I've brought in an expert. Meet Dr. Steva Stoll Hardcastle. A veterinarian in rural central Pennsylvania, Steva works with both house pets and larger farm animals. Growing up, she spent summers on her grandparents' farm with a multitude of farm animals around her. Steva's mom also helped foster her love of animals. Since my mom was a teacher, she guided what I watched on TV. You know, like Natural Geographic specials or um, Jacques Cousteau or... Oh, what was the one? It was it was sponsored by Mutual of Omaha. Wild Kingdom, that's what it was. Jim, go out and wrestle that alligator. Steva is not wrestling alligators, but her practice gets her in contact with all sorts of animals and their human companions. If you are a pet owner, you understand how much you give to your pet and how much you receive. Care, companionship, protection, entertainment. But as a veterinarian, Steva points out something else pets and humans give to each other. Diseases. So we're probably one of the first line for what we call zoonotic diseases, which are diseases that pets can give humans or humans can give pets. I've seen ringworm. So that's, that's a fungal disease. I've had it myself. I got it from a guinea pig. But most of the time, I'll have owners get ringworm from kittens, little stray kittens that they bring home. And they're cuddling them against their neck and kissing them and holding them. And by golly, what's that on my neck? Yep, ringworm. Ew. Yeah, I can see how that can happen. I mean, kittens are insanely adorable. I'm actually shocked I haven't gotten ringworm already. Okay, so how can we human pet odors infect the animals in our care? Well, we could give ringworm back. There are cases of certain types of bacteria on our skin that we can give to pets um, that can be resistant to antibiotics. And flu virus is pretty deadly to ferrets. So I always tell people if you have a ferret, you know, and you're really not feeling well with a fever, and you're not, you know, don't go cuddling your ferret. Who knew cuddling could be so dangerous? But what about climate change? We're all in this together. And climate change, as it's affecting temperature, water availability, and weather patterns, affects humans and therefore affects their pets. But it also has an impact on our livestock and our food production. Um, is a very important thing that many people don't think about. In fact, as a veterinarian, Steva sees that climate change is already bugging our pets. Pets are affected 
because of the type of insects and what we call arthropod vectors. So these are bugs, you know, whether it's a, a mosquito or a tick or you know, various kinds of bugs that need warm weather to live in or a certain type of humidity or moisture, geographical patterns or where they live in the United States are expanding into places that they never lived before. So as veterinarians, we have to be aware that a disease that we never saw in Pennsylvania, we can now. Let's take ticks. And I'm going to use the Lone Star Tick. And so most people, you know, what? Lone Star? What do we associate that with? Texas! You know, the Lone Star State. So Texas, um, the tick is called Amblyoma americanum. And it used to be distributed really just in the, the southern part of the United States. It is now moving up the East Coast. We're finding it here in Pennsylvania. It's going up the Mississippi Valley, up into the states, you know, lining those areas. And so the Lone Star Tick carries Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, and it carries uh, a species of Ehrlichia, which are two diseases that our dogs can get. And so these, um, these diseases we may not have tested for some years ago, but now if we have a dog who's running a fever or showing certain types of clinical signs and we're not finding an answer with the common tests that we do, we may need to send out and do a more wide-ranging, what we call tick panel. Steve had told me about the Gulf Coast tick that originated in the southern states. This tick is moving north into Virginia, Oklahoma, Kansas, and has even been found in parts of Canada. The tick carries a nasty disease. Patizonosis. There's no real cure for it. These dogs are on three different types of antibiotic kinds of medications and then they have to take another medication for life because part of this protozoan that's carried by ticks buries itself into the muscle of dogs and so we can't get it out of the muscle. So we have to give drugs that once it leaves the muscle we can attack it. But without diagnosing and treating it, dogs will be dead in a, in a year from this disease. It's, it's a horrible disease. Warmer winters are also contributing to the increase of ticks and therefore the diseases they spread. Ticks are not impeded by snow unless it's sustained and super, super, super cold. In fact, ticks kind of like snow because just like people, you can bury into the snow and form a little snow igloo and it actually gives you a little bit of insulation. Ticks love a little snow. And the other thing that folks don't realize about ticks, they think about ticks being carried by, we're going to move to the, the deer tick, exodes, that it's on deer or just mice or chipmunks, but these ticks are carried by songbirds. You may have a mowed lawn, but if robins and other birds are landing in your yard, they're bringing ticks in. Now that 
is a terrifying thought. To think that I sit in the park on a landing strip for ticks. And speaking of flying dangers, turns out mosquitoes are not only a dangerous nuisance for humans, they pester our pets too. Well, mosquitoes affect pets in a variety of ways. They can carry a number of diseases from West Nile virus, and we think about that being more on the horse side, but they also carry heartworm. And heartworm was once more of a, a Gulf Coast up the Mississippi Valley, up kind of the East Coast into the Carolinas, but not so much coming up into the Northeast and other parts of the United States. Now, with increased water and flooding, we're seeing a nice host for mosquitoes. One of the things that has been talked a lot in the veterinary community was when Hurricane Katrina came through. People were displaced, obviously. Some were able to take their pets with them, but many not. So there were many, you know, homeless, orphaned dogs that were rescued out of the South and then rehomed up in all over the United States. These dogs harboring heartworm disease, now being taken in cars and vans and redistributed all over the United States to new homes, thankfully, you know, for the people who are willing to adopt them, but they're bringing in new diseases to their areas. And not only heartworm disease coming out, you know, of these areas, but also uh, intestinal parasites like roundworms and hookworms and other tick-related diseases as well. It was in reading about Hurricane Katrina that I first began to consider pets and climate change. Author Dave Eggers wrote a lot about those pets left behind in New Orleans during Katrina in 2005. Forced to evacuate, pet owners faced a dilemma. Most emergency shelters, like homeless shelters, do not allow pets. So when a big storm hits, what do you do with your dog, cat, or other pets? Some people decide to stay at home with their animals and ride it out. Post-Katrina research reveals that nearly half the people who defy the evacuation ban did so in part to care for their pets. Still, many pet owners had to leave their pets behind. They believed the storm would pass quickly and they would return in a day or two. They left food out, left water, had the AC going. That's how it usually happened. But not this time. The levee broke and the city flooded. People couldn't return. In Dave Eggers' book, Zaytoon, we hear the true story of a Syrian-American who floated above the city streets in a canoe. He brought food and water to terrified, starving, and dehydrated animals trapped in sweltering homes without electricity. Thousands of pets died at home and on the streets with their caregivers far away, unable to help. Of course, during that storm and the aftermath, there was more than just pets who were affected. Many humans suffered, lost their lives, and experienced so much trauma. And somehow it's the pet stories that strike many people. And if it gets them to better understand the dangers that we face during extreme weather events, then I think it's worth considering these pets.
when I talk to animal lovers about climate change, I encourage them to find out about emergency shelters for pets. If they don't have one nearby, they can help organize emergency pet care in preparation for the more frequent and larger storms to come. In our conversation about pets, Steva also told me about extreme heat, which affects all of us, including our pets. Heat waves affect some humans more than others, particularly the elderly and the very young. Similarly, certain pets are especially vulnerable to extreme heat. So any breed that is brachiocephalic, and gosh, what does that word mean? Well, it's just a, a dog or a cat with a smushy face. So think of a bulldog, think of a Himalayan or a Persian cat, pugs, Boston Terriers. These pets have been bred to basically have no nose. And the nose actually plays an important function for all of us. It clears diseases, but it also helps cool us. So, you know, air passing through the nasal passages, it's already starting to cool. So when you can't cool yourself very well, a hot or humid day can put you in risk for heat stress or heat stroke. And those breeds are the most prone. Never leave them outside in the sun. Don't go running or walking in the middle of the day. Have them inside, have air conditioning, a fan, keep them cool with air moving over them because they can't sweat like we sweat to cool. They're going to cool themselves by panting and they will sweat through their foot pads. So cooling their foot pads and allowing, you know, a good panting with air circulation. Heat stress and heat stroke can occur in other breeds as well. I think about my dogs who love to play ball or frisbee or who go run with their owners. They will keep going even probably when they shouldn't. They're not going to tell you, hey, you know what? I'm getting a little warm here. We need to stop. They will keep running after the ball and playing frisbee until they really almost collapse. And we will see them come in in shock with a temperature, you know, at 107, their normal temperature being around 101. And with heat stress and stroke, especially heat stroke, which is the more severe form, you can get brain damage, kidney damage. These, these dogs can die. It's a horrific death and owners feel so guilty because they didn't see or understand what was happening. So we try to educate, educate, educate on that matter. In a moment, Steve will give us advice for how we can protect our pets from the effects of climate change. But before she does, let's consider food. Pet food can get really expensive. Many folks want to give their pets the best possible food. On a warmer planet, we are going to see more droughts and floods. These will and are disrupting food production. As grain prices rise, so will meat prices. Human food will cost more, so will pet food. Steve explains, though, that even with higher prices, we will get less bang for the buck. As heat rises, the nutrient value of the corn and the wheat decreases because of the stress of the heat and possibly lack of water. So if you're having a less nutrient-dense food ingredient going into the pet food or 
directly being fed to cattle, sheep, goats, you know, horses. They're not going to get the nutrition they need. And so if we're talking about food production on the cattle side, you know, the weight gain, the rapidness of the weight gain, the health of the, of the, of the cattle is going to be affected. So what is a pet owner to do? Plenty. There's a lot you could do. Just like with all aspects of climate change, we are not helpless or hopeless. Every day, more and more people are educating themselves about climate change. and They discover how it affects something they cherish. In response, they are pursuing solutions, small and large. Steva already told us about the need to keep our pets from overheating. I asked her to share any other advice she has for pet owners during this time of climate change. One out of nine pets in their lifetime will get lost. And most of those aren't found. So microchip your pet. And I highly recommend cats get microchipped as well. Because we know when indoor cats get lost, they're not used to getting outside and they're very fearful. And many times when a cat gets out, you're not getting them back. Secondly, have a plan for a natural disaster just like you know, a person would, you know, you may have some water stored in your basement or a few canned goods or, you know, things, supplies, candles, water, batteries, matches, candles, all of those things. Hey, why not store some dog food or, you know, store some water for them, leash, collar, bowls, something you can quick grab and take with you. Write down medications that your pets are on so that you've got your medication list and dosages and things like that to be able to take with you. Dogs should be on heartworm prevention year-round in areas where that's prevalent. And most heartworm preventatives now give the extra bonus of helping prevent internal parasites. These are the worms that live inside your dog, roundworms, hookworms, whipworms. A couple of those are the zoonotic kind, so we can get them from our dogs and our cats. And it's not just veterinarians who are talking about good parasite control for these zoonotic diseases. It's the Center for Disease Control. It's the Companion Animal Parasite Council and veterinarians because we just see it every day, especially families who have children under the age of 12 because you're going to go pet fluffy and then go eat your peanut butter and jelly sandwich without washing your hands. Maybe, maybe, maybe. And people who are on certain kind of medications that might be suppressing your immune system. So chemotherapy folks, autoimmune disease folks, if you have an immune system that's compromised, your pet needs to be on parasite protection year, year round because you don't have the immune system to fight that possible exposure yourself. Lastly, tick and flea control. I still hear people, well, I'm gonna take them off over the winter. Don't. If you live in an area that has ticks, you need to be on good year-round flea and tick, whether it's you know a Soresto collar, whether it's a NexGuard chew once a month, or one of the topicals do it. Your veterinarian's not just trying to sell you stuff. Your veterinarian's trying to keep your pet and you healthy and safe. Special thanks to Dr. Steva Stoll-Hardcastle for sharing her expertise with us. 
If you want to learn more about pets and climate change, head over to the Citizens Climate blog. I have a ton of links that you can look at so that you can dig deeper into this topic. Visit citizensclimate.org slash blog and look for episode 13 of our show. That's citizensclimate.org slash blog. Now it is time for the art house. Carrying on with the theme of pets, I did some research into the pet industry. They are always looking ahead to consider market trends. Lately, pet industry researchers have been considering climate change and how it will affect pet ownership. In the following monologue, I weave in some of their findings with a little of my own musings. This next piece is set in the future, the year 2167, 150 years from now. Climate historian Timothy Meadows looks back to consider pets in a time of climate change. And in so doing, we will discover the pets of the future. I am Timothy Meadows. It is Friday, June 26, 2167, and time for that day in climate history. By the year 2026, the human population exceeded 8 billion people. Dog and cat populations also exploded. In the US alone, the number of dog and cat pets reached over 200 million. Many of these were overfed and dangerously overweight. With the growing droughts and disruption in grain and meat production during the 2020s, the cost of pet care grew dramatically. While pets provided companionship and entertainment, many people found they simply could not afford to keep a dog or cat in their homes. As a result, pets got smaller. Large dogs consumed too much, so for a time smaller breeds became popular. Also, people began to opt for more practical pets, ones that also provided food. Chickens can be surprisingly friendly and social. They became the rage in suburbs and even in cities where their owners benefited from the eggs the chickens produced. Guinea pigs, a delicacy in Ecuador and Peru, became popular in North America. The guinea pig was an inexpensive pet that could provide a meal in a pinch. By 2035, pet sharing became common. Much like communities share vehicles through services like Communicar, pet sharing services abounded in North America, Australia, and Europe. Animal lovers spent time with a dog or a cat for a few hours a week without the expense of pet ownership. By 2075, historians note a dramatic decrease in the public interest in pets. Humans lived in closer-knit communities with more social cohesion, active, friendly collectives, and shared spaces. As a result, people found their need for companionship met through friendship with other humans. On this day in 2167, we remember that day in climate history. If you have an idea for the art house, feel free to contact me, radio at citizensclimate.org. That email address, radio at citizensclimate.org. 
I am grateful to spend this time with you here on Spirit in Action. If you like what you hear, check out Citizens Climate Radio at northernspirit.org. You can learn more about Citizens Climate Lobby at citizensclimate.org. And if you want to connect with me, and I'd love to hear from you, please email me, radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. So many fascinating aspects of climate change. I had never considered the role, the effects, the future of pets in a climate change world. And the earlier discussion on fear, apocalypse, how the messages about climate change effectively motivate our responses to such an urgent situation, that applies to so many aspects of how we heal the world, which is what Northern Spirit Radio is all about. And that is why Peterson's many-faceted work have a home here. Check out more on Peterson at petersontoscano.com. His performance art is awesome. Thanks to Peterson Toscano for sitting in for me today, but I will be back and I'll see you next week as your host for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice